welcome everyone listening, whether you're on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you happen to listen to your podcasts. You are currently listening to The Theology Mill from Whitfinstock Publishers. My name is Zach Mickle. Um, I work here at Whitfinstock and I'm also the host of this podcast, which consists of interviews with some of the leading authors in theology, biblical studies, and philosophy. If you like what you hear on the podcast, come stop by our website at whipfinstock.com. That's W-I-P-F and stock, S-T-O-C-K.com. And on this episode, which is a standalone episode, I get to interview Dr. Stephen DeLay. Stephen earned his PhD in philosophy at Oxford in 2017 and is the author of several books of philosophy and fiction, including a handful now with us at Whitfinstock. He's also an old member of Christchurch Oxford and a fellow of Ambrose College Wolf University. So without further ado, friends, let's head over to the interview. So I am here with Stephen DeLay, who is a research fellow at the Global Center for Advanced Studies um, and also a tutorial fellow at Wolf University. Is that right? Correct. Is that correct? Okay, good, good. Um, and he has written a kind of an insane amount of books for... Have You finished your PhD in what, like 2019, 2018? Uh, 2017. 2017. Okay, I'm a year off. But yeah, I'm, I'm super impressed by the amount of like volumes you've published and that you have in process and we'll we'll get into those i mean you've got like phenomenology stuff philosophy of religion stuff but also fiction as well which will be fun to chat about a bit but before we get to that let's um as we always do let's talk about what we are sipping on so i have a um a decaf coffee because it's afternoon here on the pacific coast um which i know decaf is like not I think from what my understanding, I'm not like a coffee buff or anything, but from my understanding, decaf generally is not quite as high quality. Um, but I have a really nice decaf blend from Latin America um, by Temple Coffee Roasters that's down in Sacramento because I got to be faithful to my upper left uh, coffee roasters. But it's it's really nice. I'm joining and I'm just drinking it black as I always do. So and that's what I am sipping on. What about you, Stephen? I'm having a black coffee also. I, uh, I've i always drank black coffee. I had a friend in college that used to chastise me for that. And he always said, well, if you're going to drink black coffee, why don't you just, why don't you just get an Americano? And ah, I, 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 nev- I never had a rational response because when I thought about it, he's correct. But when I'm out, I just don't like having to wait for people to use the espresso, espresso machine. So I just will get a black coffee. So sure, today I... Uh, sure. There's a there's a big Mennonite community where I live here in uh, in Winston Salem, okay. and so they're not really as active or as large as they once were. But one of the kind of relics of the the Mennonite presence in the town is that there's a number of really great uh, Mennonite bakeries, and they have their sort of home generational recipes. So you can get like really great desserts and pastries and things like that. So I went over to a place called uh, Louis and Honey's, and I just got yeah. a, a nice a nice black coffee from them today. So. Nice. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm with you on drip. I mean, Americanos are like kind of a treat for me. And usually it's like a buck or more expensive or whatever. But uh, black coffee is just you, you can't go wrong with it as long as it's good. Um, OK, let's let's move to the three. I, I want to hear what, what you think were the three best books since we're kind of, you know, at a turning point. Um, we're what, 12 days into 2023 now. I want to hear what you thought were the three best books that you read in 2022 and why specifically specifically you liked those books. Well, the best book that I that I read last year was a novel by John Bowles called The Magis, which was published way back in 1965. And the novel is about this uh, this Oxford graduate who leaves England to teach at a, a English boarding school in this isolated Greek island. And it's a s- sort of psychological thriller, sort of along the lines of the um, movie from 1997. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's uh, uh, the game with Michael Douglas and Sean Penn. 
Okay. And uh, anyway, I hadn't known I hadn't known about Fowles until this this year. Apparently, he's, he's widely considered to be one of the best novelists of the 20th century. And so I've sort of been getting into his his work recently. I really love that book. But if we're talking about philosophy or strictly phenomenological philosophy, then I think my favorite books of this year have been uh, Walter Hopp's Introduction to Phenomenology, which came out with Rutledge. Fantastic book. Walter, I think, is one of the best Husserl scholars in the world. And uh, he studied under Dallas Willard at SC, and uh-huh. he gave a really, really fantastic introduction to phenomenology, which I think is is worth reading. And then I also uh, really been enjoying reading a book by uh, Bettina Borgo called Anxiety of Philosophical History, just a massive book uh, exploring the history of, uh, of anxiety as a concept, uh, beginning with mm-hmm. Kant onwards. And that's a really, really good book. And then I think the third book that I really enjoyed this year was uh, a book by Adam Graves, who uh, wrote a, uh, a book called The Phenomenology of Revelation in Heidegger, Marion, and Recur. And mm. I think that might be one of the best books that's ever been written in uh, the, the theological turn of phenomenology. It's just really awesome. And I learned so much from from Adam's book. So that, that would be another book I'd recommend. Wow, that's high praise. Um, those all sound like really delightful. The I'm interested in that book on anxiety. Do, do they deal with uh, Kierkegaard at all in there? Yeah, so Kierkegaard figures largely in that book, sort of as a kind of transitionary figure from German idealism uh, into okay. 20th century phenomenology. So uh, Borgo discusses uh, Kierkegaard's relationship to people like Schelling and then uh, explains how subsequent thinkers such as Heidegger are, are, are borrowing heavily from Kierkegaard. Mm, wonderful. Wonderful. Okay. Let's, I, we do have a Kierkegaard question, but I want to say that because at first I want to hear a little bit about yourself um, for our listeners who aren't maybe familiar with you or your work. So tell, tell me a little bit about, you know, where, where you studied for your PhD, um, who you studied with, what, what kind of work you really try to, um, uh, you know, kind of most prominently uh, write in just just a little bit about yourself in terms of your your academic uh, path so far. So I studied philosophy uh, for my PhD. It, it was a two stage process. I, I began my doctoral studies at Rice University under the supervision of Stephen Kroll, and uh, it was there that I was I, I delved deeply into into Husserl and Heidegger. I mean, for for listeners, they're probably aware that in in the world of Anglophone phenomenology, there's been a a fairly dominant school that originated in Berkeley under uh, Hubert Dreyfus, which Mm. has kind of tended to emphasize uh, the supposed discontinuity or rupture between Husserl and Heidegger's forms of phenomenology. And so for a long time, that was kind of the prevailing way of reading the, the history of classical phenomenology was to kind of accentuate uh, Heidegger's uniqueness by sort of, uh, I don't know, relegating Husserl to a sort of merely historical status as a sort of kind of, you know, out to lunch Cartesian. And Steve is very much against that reading. And so, you know, one of the things that I benefited by uh, studying with Steve was just to see how Husserl and Heidegger could kind of be read in connection to one another in, in a useful way. Um, Steve isn't really a fan of the theological turn. And so when my work sort of tended in that direction, I I just decided that it probably wouldn't be the best idea to try to write a thesis under the direction of someone who was very much personally against those figures. And so Mm -hmm. I ended up transferring to Oxford where I had the opportunity to work with some people there that were going to maybe be a little bit more receptive to that work. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, when I got there, I ended up, uh, bouncing around and, um, ended up more or less working on my own, which was kind of a, an interesting experience. Hmm. But uh, even though my path to the DPhil was was kind of unusual and, and in some ways fraught, it ended up working well. And so in uh, 2017, I finished my DPhil at Oxford. Got it. Okay. Nice. Nice. And so, you, yeah, you've, you've, you've talked a little bit about already um, – you know how your how your work features uh, phenomenology, especially the theological turn, um, but also, I mean, I've only read a little bit a little bit of your stuff. Um, but even in your even in your kind of like primer, your introduction to the theological turn in France, 
um, in French phenomenology, you you come back to Kierkegaard many times throughout the book, especially in the conclusion or the closing chapter. So tell me a little bit about um, how Kierkegaard figures in your own thinking. Kierkegaard to me is the the single greatest influence or inspiration on, on the work I try to do. Uh, I think he's he's arguably the greatest philosopher of all time, and he's certainly my personal favorite. And um, in some ways, Kierkegaard, he, he changed my life. So when I was an undergraduate, uh, I took a course in the epistemology of religious belief, and we were reading uh, analytic philosophy of religion, works by uh, folks like Alvin Plantinga and Warranted Christian Belief. And at the time I took that course, I was actually an atheist. And mm-hmm. uh, I had some friends in the class who were Christians who wanted to start an external reading group. And the first work that they suggested we read was uh, Kierkegaard's Fear and Trembling. Mm. And that was a really transformative experience uh, in my life because I had had the uh, assumption, or I suppose you could say prejudice, that uh, Christian belief just wasn't intellectually or philosophically credible. And so I had a, a kind of crisis of the sort because when I read Kierkegaard, I was struck by the fact that he was so immensely and undeniably brilliant that I, I had difficulty accepting that he could have been a Christian. Mm-hmm. And so my, my reading of Kierkegaard sort of began almost as a side of almost like psychological investigation, trying to figure out how he could have uh, believed the sorts of things that he believed. And then um, shortly after that, I had a, very powerful uh, religious experience or mystical experience that, that converted me to, to theism. And then later on, I, I became a Christian. And so ever since then, um, working my way through academic philosophy and turning to phenomenology, I've just been very interested in how it's possible to try to produce philosophical intellectual work that is still somehow uh, a reflection of my faith. And so Kierkegaard has always sort of been a, um, a, a, a massive uh, inspiration for me in mm. terms of how that how that might be possible. Sure, sure, yeah. So, did you discover? Did you disco- like? Did you discover Kierkegaard? You said you were an atheist when you were reading Kierkegaard in kind of a reading group. But did you? Were you kind of thick in the world of philosophy um, before mm. before becoming Christian? Or I guess what was like? What was the sequence of events as far as your? Because I'm interested in kind of how you discovered philosophy and theology originally. Um, but then also, like, where did your conversion kind of play in that sequence of events? I have always been a, a reader my entire life, ever since I was a, 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 ever since I was a boy. And when I was young, I was particularly interested in, in history and military history, and also uh, politics. And when I got to high school, um, I had a really wonderful English teacher in my sophomore year that introduced us to the American transcendentalists. And so we were reading Emerson and Thoreau and, and figures like that. And then I also, it was, it was then that I was exposed to, to Dostoevsky and uh, crime and punishment. And when I was reading those texts, which you could say aren't strictly philosophical, I, I, I was always drawn to questions that weren't necessarily coming out in the, the discussion in English class. And then of course, later on, when I got to college and discovered philosophy as a dip, discipline, I figured out, oh, those are the kinds of questions that philosophy Mm-hmm. Um, asks. So I didn't have any uh, exposure to philosophy in high school. And when I came to college, actually, I, I started out as a, a political science major because Cal Poly, uh, where I went, they have, it's a little unusual in that they, they have freshmen declare majors. And so I think it was uh, the summer between my sophomore and junior years that I had a general edu- education class in uh, philosophy, it was an ethics class. And we read uh, Plato, Mill, and Nietzsche. And then it was in that fall uh, term after summer that I took a metaphysics class. And in that class, we read Plato, uh, Descartes, and then Gilbert Ryle. And so mm-hmm. what happened was when I was introduced to Gilbert Ryle and, uh, and phenomenology, uh, it sort of 
took me away from naturalism and materialism because when I first came to philosophy, I was an atheist. Uh, I was a naturalist. Uh, I guess it was kind of enthralled to, to scientism. So phenomenology kind of showed me why naturalism is false. And so then I kind of lingered in this middle space where uh, I was still an atheist, but I was no longer, I guess, a naturalist when it came to the philosophy of mind. And phenomenology, I found to be a philosophical movement or school or way of doing philosophy that really freed me to kind of explore the the issues that I was interested in. And then when I started reading Kierkegaard, I started to see how Kierkegaard's interest in faith and, and the nature of God uh, was sort of suitable to phenomenological inquiries as well. And so that kind of led to an interest that I had in, uh, in Heidegger. Got it. Okay. And so you kind of, you kind of worked your way like chronologically through the philosophy, like particularly through phenomenology. So you discovered Kierkegaard and Heidegger. And then from there you moved into kind of the theological turn. Is that right? Yeah. And so I, I discovered the, the, the figures that are commonly associated with the theological turn only towards sort of the later stages of my time at Rice. And I first started reading uh, Jean-Luc Marion, and then I found uh, Michel Henry as well, sort of became a, a big influence mm-hmm. on my thinking. And then when I got to Oxford, uh, that's where I discovered uh, the work of Emmanuel Falk and uh, also Jean-Yves Lacoste. So yeah, for me, it was a sort of state series of discoveries, just First, discovering philosophy in general, analytic philosophy, the history of philosophy, and then discovering phenomenology. And then once I discovered phenomenology, uh, sort of being initiated into uh, into the, the work that's being done by the people in France who are uh, associated with the theological term. Yeah. 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 And I wonder, too, because like a lot of those guys are working with sort of theology proper as well, like I know Falk. Uh, works with like Balthazar a lot and Marion works with um, I know he's like really big into like the apophatic spiritual tradition Um, but so so reading those guys did you kind of start to uh, discover theology and who were who were kind of the theological figures that you discovered through them if you did I have no formal training in theology so the little I guess I know about theology has really just come from my own reading and then also just discussions that I've had with people who are are theology students. So when I arrived at Oxford, some of my closest friends were uh, doctoral students in the in the theology faculty. And I had really no knowledge of church history or the different theological schools and movements. So I sort of just reversed engineered uh, the history of Christian theology starting with uh, the philosophical figures with whom I was most familiar, like Heidegger, for mm-hmm. example. And so yeah. I used to have discussions with my friends about uh, Boltmann and Barth and, and these sorts of thinkers who were sort of in the neighborhood of, of Heidegger. And uh, I had a lot of discussions about Rudolf Otto and people like that. And, but for me, I think the central theological figure that's always sort of drawn my interest above all is, has been Kierkegaard. But in, in, as the years have gone on, I, I've tried to read more widely uh, in theology, and I have an interest in the church fathers, and uh, I'm less interested in, 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 in medieval theology, though, you know, I try to, to brush up on it when I can. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can't blame you. A lot of it is pretty well. This scholastic stuff can be pretty, pretty dry, so I don't blame you at all for that. Um, what, for, I think like a lot of... I think a lot of uh, people in general, but even Christians kind of see philosophy as, I don't know, like pointless or superfluous or like, I mean, even working from like you were talking about kind of a naturalist um, perspective and seeing philosophy as just unnecessary or as almost kind of like a ridiculous endeavor. Like I remember my freshman year of college, I was at a Bible college and we, one of the gen ed requirements was this like intro to philosophy course. And I remember we were sitting in there listening to this professor lecture about like, you know, forms or whatever in Plato. And it was just like, oh, my God, this is that has nothing to do with my life, you know. (laughs) But so obviously, obviously, I've had kind of a conversion and enjoy philosophy a lot now, but and find it really, really valuable and meaningful. But but what what would you say is kind of what what makes philosophy worth studying for Christians? Like why why should Christians pay attention um, or try to find meaning in something like philosophy? I think 
one thing to say is that not everyone has to read philosophy or or theology. So, you know, it could be the case that for for some people there's really no there's no reason to. Um on the other hand, for people who just find themselves uh naturally sort of perplexed by the kinds of questions that philosophy and theology poses, then in that case there's there's not necessarily a harm in in doing it. Um of course, there is this question about well, what's really the value in in reading philosophy or theology? And I mean, that's a question that I try to keep front in my own mind. I think that's part of the reason why I was originally drawn as I was to the philosophical traditions that I was. So I was very drawn to existentialism and very drawn to phenomenology, precisely for this reason that uh, they're self-conscious philosophical attempts to try to make sense of the human condition and the human experience as it's lived. And uh, that's why I'm also interested in uh, the theological turn, because in a way it kind of merges a theological interest, this question about about the question of God and, and man's relation to God with a kind of existentialist approach. Um, you know, of course, there, there is a there's a tradition of thinkers, and, and here I have in mind people such as Pascal, but also, of course, Kierkegaard as well, who are always keen to emphasize the danger of, of diversion in human life, that that human beings are are capable of, in a way, failing to be themselves, uh, whether this is through a form of convers- uh, conformism or, or something of that kind. And there are, of course, for the same tradition, uh, intellectual forms of diversion. So if you think, for example, of Kierkegaard's criticism of what he calls Christendom, he's also very critical of uh, of theology that, that was being done at the time in, in, in the academic world in which he was living in, in Copenhagen. Um, but of course, Kierkegaard himself is, is, is a prolific writer, and he was a certain type of philosopher or, or theologian in his own regard. So you have to think that unless he's just committing some kind of flagrant contradiction or is just some kind of flagrant hypocrite that there must be a value to to reading philosophy or theology insofar as presumably he thinks that his own readers aren't wasting their time if if they read his work so i think my general rule of thumb the way that i kind of approach the issue as a practical matter is that you know it's a question of your motivations for reading the text you're reading so the way I see it is that if you're reading a work of theology or if you're reading a work of philosophy with the intention of having it edify you and in some way help you grow in your faith and conform to Christ, then that's a valuable mm-hmm. exercise. If, on the other hand, you find yourself getting bogged down in these sort of abstract questions that don't really have any bearing on your yeah. your, your existence as, as a human being, then you may as well just chuck those books out the window. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's a good word. So, so for people who are, you know, for um, philosophers who are, you know, very much not like religious or maybe even, you know, have arguments against religion or Christianity specifically, like, like if you're reading someone like Heidegger, who's like, he's got his whole like destruction of metaphysics and his kind of reinterpretation of like the history of Christian theology and philosophy that can, can seem like antagonistic to, you know, certain iterations of like christian orthodoxy whatever that means for people so if you're reading someone like heidegger or like nietzsche who kind of has a you know in a similar way as like uh really coming at christianity in a way how um how first of all like are as a person of faith are those are are, is, is reading those kinds of thinkers helpful or fruitful for your faith in any way um or you know or on the you know or is it the opposite where they're actually harmful to your faith and and kind of maybe explain why um, you find them helpful or harmful i think whether one finds reading nietzsche or heidegger for example as harmful or useful depends a lot again on the the particular person and and how they're approaching those texts and why so Mm -hmm. i mean there's a tendency in in the academic world of of phenomenology philosophy but also theology to i think maybe in a way elevate nietzsche and heidegger to a sort of status that they don't deserve right so i mean when we read these sorts of texts i think it's important to to remember that 
we are reading books that were just written by men that these people mm-hmm. as important as they are as brilliant as they are as as fruitful as reading them can be these these aren't gods right and and uh, it's not as if uh you know god dictated being in time to heidegger so uh i think it's important if as a christian to not be intimidated by by nietzsche and heidegger and to feel as if well i have to avoid uh reading these texts because somehow my my faith can't can't hold up under under the things that nietzsche and heidegger have to say so I think that if one's faith is strong enough and one is thoughtful enough, reading who, uh, Heidegger and Nietzsche can actually be a useful exercise because it's it's liberating. I found to, to 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 discover that one's faith can survive a confrontation mm-hmm. with with the great philosophers. I mean, from a perspective of just intellectual honesty, if you're doing academic work, then I think it's important to start with Nietzsche and Heidegger and have something intelligible to say in response, uh, because it's just dishonest to pretend that uh, what Nietzsche and Heidegger have had to say about Christian faith uh, hasn't been said. But um, at the same time, I think there's also a tendency to dwell too long on Nietzsche and Heidegger and to make everything uh, that's done in, in Christian theology, at least within the phenomenological world, maybe too responsive to Nietzsche and Heidegger. So, you know, my view is that uh, one should have a clear understanding in his own mind of what a Christian should say in response to Nietzsche and Heidegger. And then once one has clarified that, then you can move on and, and go on to say what it is that you want to say. But uh, that's a process. I mean, uh, for me, there have been a number of thinkers who have, have done this in their own work that's been um, hugely inspiring to me. So uh, you can mention someone like Emmanuel Falk. Mm-hmm. Who's had has had a lot to say about Heidegger over this question of finitude and how Christian faith uh, is responsive to the criticisms that Heidegger made about faith, and uh, Jean Yves Lacoste has also done so, and um, you know, of course, Jean Luc Marion uh, has had a lot to say not only about Heidegger uh, but also Nietzsche. I mean, when I was at Oxford, and uh, this was 2015. Uh, Brian Leiter from the University of Chicago came to the the post-Kantian philosophy seminar there at Oxford, and he gave a paper on Nietzsche, which was titled, I think, The Death of God and the Death of Morality. And there, uh, Leiter was kind of giving the standard Nietzschean line that modernity is characterized by this this death of God, where the death of God means that we've sort of discovered, uh, supposedly, that God doesn't exist. And of course, one of the implications of this uh, reputed discovery is that it undermines what we've previously taken to be the grounding for for uh, for our moral systems. And so, during the question and answer period, I asked Leiter about what he makes of Jean Luc Marion's uh, response to this. So, in works like uh, Negative Certainties and, and other places, Marion has basically criticized the Nietzschean conception of the death of God as itself being an instance in what Marion calls metaphysics, where metaphysics amounts, when it comes to the question of God, is to a a form of what Marion calls conceptual uh, idolatry. So basically, to go back to this point about the Afropanic approach to theology or the negative theology, as you said before, Marion's basic idea is that when Nietzsche takes himself to be criticizing uh, belief in God, Marion claims that the sort of God that Nietzsche has in mind is precisly that it's mm-hmm. a it's a, it's an idea it's a it's a god of our minds of our own construction but marion wants to make the point that it no it, it doesn't at all follow from the fact that that god is no longer credible that the true christian god doesn't exist and um i think that's an important lesson to learn of course nietzscheans uh, are resistant to that claim but i, I do think that there's a, a fundamental power to the critique that someone like marion has made against nietzsche yeah, for sure. No, yeah. And I, I think Heidegger makes kind of a similar mistake in his interpretation of sort of the his, history of Christian theology. Like, I think, um, like, I think he, uh, he seems to like pass over the whole apophatic tradition, like, in his destruction of metaphysics and kind of a scholastic mode of metaphysics. Like, he is almost, and from what I'm, aware of like I, I think he was aware of 
you know, negative theology and this, you know, kind of stream within the Christian tradition that was longstanding, but he seems to totally pass over it or ignore it in his criticism. So it's, it's interesting that he, he doesn't address it at all. Um, just, just a quick word there about Heidegger. Yeah. 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 In, in the, in the early twenties, of course, Heidegger gave a series of lectures on the phenomenology of religious life. And there he's talking mainly about some, some letters from Paul, but he does mm -hmm. mention mysticism as a problem. And I think one of the reasons why Heidegger was interested in the, the problem or question of mysticism is that it touches on a number of, uh, of, themes that get worked out more thematically in works of his, such as Being in Time, and then particularly in his later thinking, which is this, this issue about ineffability, right? And so actually, I mean, a lot of the things that Heidegger has to say about being, which is for him not an entity, no being, are very similar to what negative theology more traditionally had, had ascribed to God. And mm. so there, there's something interesting going on in Heidegger's critique of ontotheology, his critique of Christian theology, where he sort of elevates being almost to the status of what God previously uh, had occupied. And I think, that, again, that's one of the useful things about uh, Jean-Luc Marion's critique of Heidegger. So if you think of one of his, I think his very first book, which was The Idol in the Distance, uh, Marion discusses uh, Nietzsche in there. And then, of course, there's the, the famous book as well, God Without Being. And so, yeah, the idea is that there are phenomenological resources that can allow the Christian theologian or indeed just the, the, the Christian phenomenologist to hopefully say something intelligible and useful and truthful about the nature of God and the nature of faith um, in a way that sort of circumvents some of these criticisms that Heidegger and, and Nietzsche have made. Yeah, and I like what you said a little bit earlier about kind of... Uh it being possible to like overlinger a bit on these uh, great, great philosophers like Nietzsche and Heidegger. Like I can't tell you how many really great books I've read that were basically two thirds of like grappling with Heidegger and Nietzsche or, you know, I, I don't know what, whatever else. Um, uh, and then only in like the last third or the last chapter, do they really start to like, uh, offer a corrective or like a constructive proposal of their own. So I, I do, yeah, I, I, I like the nuance that you're, that you're kind of proposing here of like, you know, definitely being willing to engage and sort of uh, meet these great philosophers where they're at, um, but not to like make your whole theological project just like just solely a response to them, you know, and not, not making it so much about just, in, you know, so much about um kind of grappling with their work so i appreciate that a lot um one of the kind of moving moving on now one of the um things you talk about i think it's in your introduction to the phenomenology in france book um you talk about how there's kind of this conception that like phenom like the French theological turn in phenomenology is kind of dominated by Catholics or that it's only written for, you know, two and four Catholics. And you kind of, you kind of say, you know, um, no, that's not true. Like you, you don't have to be a Catholic to benefit from this work. Um, but why do you, why do you think that um, this theological turn has been so dominated by um, Catholic philosophers and why, why does it seem like there are so few Protestants kind of engaging in this? That to me is a mystery. I'm not sure if I have a completely worked out explanation for why that is the case, though, as you remark, it certainly is the case. So it's curious uh, to go back just for a moment to the, the point about uh, about Nietzsche's critique of uh, of God or belief in God. When I had mentioned uh, Marion's response to Nietzsche at the at the Leiter seminar, Leiter didn't respond to, to Marion's criticism. He just said, oh, well, I'm not interested in Catholic apologetics. And so I thought that this was this is really suggestive because Leiter's basic attitude was that, well, I don't have to read Marion because all Marion is doing is just Catholic apologetics. And so when I wrote Phenomenology in France, I wanted to try to do something uh, to the extent that I can to kind of disabuse people of, of that of that idea, because I don't think that uh, someone like Marion, for example, is doing just Catholic apologetics. It is true that. Uh, Marion has written works that are self-consciously strictly apologetical. So I have in mind a, a more recent book of his called uh, A Brief Apology for a Catholic Moment. 
But if you look at his earlier uh, phenomenological works like Reduction and Givenness or Being Given, it's certainly true that from a philosophical perspective, he's doing a conceptual legwork that later on will open uh, open to theological horizons. But Marion himself maintains that he's still doing philosophy and not theology. And as someone who's not a Catholic, I don't find that when I read those works of Marion, that the, the phenomena that he's attempting to describe are somehow ideologically tainted by his own Catholicism. Mm-hmm. Now, there's the question as you as you ask, why is it that so many of the great uh, contemporary uh, phenomenologists in France are Catholic? I mean, Falk's Catholic, Marion's Catholic, uh, Lacoste himself is a priest, uh, Michel Henri converted to Catholicism toward the end of his life. Uh, it could just be sociologically that in France, uh, Catholicism is just the predominant Christian denomination. So those who are inclined to become Christian just end up converting to Catholicism. Of course, there's also uh, the point that uh, Husserl himself was a Protestant. And of course, uh, Heidegger converted to Protestantism after having been a Catholic. And then, of course, you can't forget someone like Paul Ricoeur, who was, was, was a Protestant. So there are important thinkers in the history of phenomenology who weren't Catholic. Not, not all of the great thinkers have been Catholics. Um, it is true that at, 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 at this point, a lot of the work in the theological turn is confined to Catholic universities like uh, Boston College. Um, so I don't know. Um, I think part of it may have something to do with the inheritance of, uh, of Thomism and then also disagreements about the nature of natural theology. So this is a little speculative on my point, uh, but beyond just mere sociological forces, I think part of what could be going on is that um, there are some people who are hostile to to God in general, people who are atheists who are working in phenomenology or in analytic philosophy who aren't interested in the theological turn at all for that reason that they think that it's just uh, veiled Christian apologetics. So that's one camp of people. Then you have people who are Catholic who don't like phenomenology. And typically these people tend to be Thomists. And I think it's because on their view, right, phenomenology is sort of just tainted by modernity. So from their perspective, the history of philosophy after medieval scholasticism, everything has just been a fall, right? And so they want to just go back to someone like Aquinas and, and stay there. And so they're not interested in phenomenology uh, at all, even if some of uh, its most prominent current practitioners happen to be Catholic. And then from the perspective of certain Protestant theologians, I think there again, there could be some sort of uh, hostility toward phenomenology because phenomenology sometimes has been sort of associated with phenomenalism or subjectivism. And so they think that there's a, a kind of absence of realism in the phenomenological movement uh, as it was sort of formulated by someone like Husserl. And then when it comes to the question of revelation or theology, I think people working out of a, a of a reform tradition, people who are influenced deeply by uh, thinkers like Bart, for example, they think that in a way phenomenology is operating noetically in the dark. So they think that if phenomenology is a philosophical movement, then that means it's not theology, which means that it's not operating within the bounds of grace, which means that it can't really get to the truth. So from the the Protestant perspective, the idea would be there's a sort of dilemma, which is that, well, if people like Marion and others who insist that phenomenology is philosophical and not merely theological, well, then it can't really have anything ultimately important to say about the nature of reality because it's operating basically with man's fallen noetic uh, uh, faculties. On the other hand, if it is theology, then it's not really philosophy. And so it's not important for that reason either. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It seems like that kind of clean distinction between nature and grace makes in some ways maybe makes phenomenology like like untenable, Um, which is where I think someone like Falk is so helpful and, kind of exploring like the borderlands sort of between philosophy and theology, which I think is just so um, important. Uh, But do you, do you feel like, um, do you feel like there's anything 
maybe Protestants, Protestant theologians, Protestant philosophers are missing in kind of sweeping phenomenology under the rug or something that could be kind of gained or benefited from um, listening to phenomenology? Yeah, one thing would be the Protestant emphasis on the text is, of course, important. And some of the greatest uh, phenomenological figures, and here I would include someone like Kierkegaard, have been very adamant that there's a proper way from a spiritual uh, perspective to read scripture, right? The idea is that scripture is supposed to be the mirror of the word. It's it's the word in, by which we, 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 we confront ourselves, right? And what I would suggest is that one thing that phenomenology is capable of doing when it's done well is that it can explicate the fundamental existential structures that the scriptures themselves are referring to. So uh, I... For this reason, I would talk about what you might call a phenomenology of faith or a phenomenology of of being in the spirit. The idea that when one has become a Christian and is living a Christian life, there's room to philosophically or phenomenologically reflect upon the structure of that experience. And that in doing so, one in turn will be explicating uh, structures that are uh, discussed uh, and outlined within within the body of scripture itself. Yeah, that's great. I'm, I haven't read your your phenomenology of uh, faith book. Is that one called In the Spirit? Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I haven't read that one yet, but I'm I definitely have it on my bookshelf, and I'm really excited to read it. Um, okay, so we've talked a lot about phenomenology. Um, obviously, there are a whole wealth of phenomenologists, um, historically speaking. So out of all kind of out of all the whole cadre of phenomenologists, whether the classical guys, the, you know, German, French, you know, theological turn out of all of them, who would you say is kind of the goat, like the greatest of all time? Um, or I guess maybe another way to put it would be like, who, who has put forth like its most brilliant iteration in your estimation? Well, I suppose one would have to say it's Husserl, if only because he's the founder and without him, there wouldn't be phenomenology. And I think that as time goes on and uh, it becomes clear that uh, Husserl in a way is inexhaustible and that there's always more to learn from him and that he was really on to a number of things, which at various stages in the history of phenomenology, critics of his uh, thought that he wasn't, uh, wasn't aware of. And it turns out that he was, but, uh, the greatest iteration of phenomenology, in my view, would have to have been provided by Michel Henry, who I think at some point might ultimately be considered to have been the greatest phenomenologist of the 20th century. Hmm. And it's okay. That's not definitely not who I was expecting you to say. I mean, obviously, Michel Henry is, is you know, phenomenal. <laughs> um, no pun intended. But um I guess, I, yeah, I was imagining you saying like Heidegger or or knowing you like Marion or, or something like that. But why 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 Henri? What makes you say Henri? Well, I don't mention Marion simply because um, I, I wanted to confine my answer to those who are who are not still active and alive and working today. Okay, um, I see. Okay. So I, uh, Henri died, I think, in 2001. Um, Heidegger, of course, is very important, but I do think that one of the things that Henri has shown is that the Heideggerian philosophy, despite all of its virtues in many respects, ultimately leads you to a position that uh, doesn't, uh, it leads to a position for which it becomes impossible to account for what in Henri's view makes the human being a human being, which is his standing before God. And so I do think that there's, there's, there's something uh, very perceptive in Henri's critique of uh, Heidegger's account of, of Dasein and being in the world, that it's somehow uh, short circuits uh, what it means to be a human by just focusing in term, uh, existence in terms of what Heidegger calls the structure of worldhood. Sure, sure. Okay, yeah, mm-hmm. that makes a lot of sense. Okay, um, obviously we've spoken a lot in praise of phenomenology, but if you had to kind of play devil's advocate and poking prod at the weaknesses of the school of thought, like um, what, what specific critiques would you make of it? I think one of the strongest critiques of phenomenology or certainly one of the most prevalent is 
a line of criticism that originates from thinkers that are uh, associated with uh, the hermeneutic tradition. And so the idea, and again, this is a, an objection that one will frequently come across when uh, people are engaging with Marion's work. So uh, if you think of someone like Wilfred Sellers is the myth of the given, right? A lot of people have said that phenomenology uh, is fundamentally misconceived methodologically because the view of experience that it presupposes or helps itself to ignores uh, the role of interpretation and conceptuality and history and all these other sort of forces that are at work in shaping uh, the kind of experience that we we take ourselves to enjoy when we reflect on it first personally. And so the idea is that phenomenology is somehow naive because when it reflects first personally on the structures that it takes to be constitutive and necessary of experience, it's somehow blind to the kind of presuppositions that are actually at work, not only in that methodological practice, but uh, that are at work in the nature of experience itself that's shaping that experience. So uh, people have said that, well, Marion, uh, his account of the saturated phenomenon, uh, it, it doesn't account for the role of interpretation and how people interpret what's given to them. And so uh, phenomenology is sort of um, dead in the water. And I, and I and I and I think that 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 criticism has a kind of superficial compellingness to it, but uh, the 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 phenomenological rejoinder to that kind of hermeneutic objection, and really to all the kinds of objections you might find, whether it's uh, objections from uh, analytic philosophy of mind and consciousness studies, where people like the Churchlands or Dan Dennett will say that consciousness in some sense doesn't exist, or uh, that that uh, that it's impossible to inquire into the nature of consciousness from a first-person point of view, these sorts of criticisms, is that any of those kinds of claims, any kind of account along those lines is ultimately going to have to be uh, made in virtue of what that position itself takes to be given or takes to be manifest or takes itself to have somehow intuited. So the the kind of Husserlian response is to say that anytime somebody wants to criticize phenomenology as a philosophical school by claiming that it's blind to something, the question is, well, uh, how does the person making that claim know so? And then the, the, the point becomes that methodologically speaking, the only way to properly adjudicate that dispute is in terms of a, 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 of a first-person intuition or a kind of scene that's constitutive of phenomenological practice itself anyway. Hmm. Yeah, I love that answer. Thank you for that. Okay, um, moving to our desert island question, um, which is is in some ways similar to who you think is the greatest of all time, but it's it's distinct in that we're talking more about like who would you who would you yourself actually enjoy reading the most. So, if you were stranded on a desert island for we'll say roughly like three years, and you could only have the collection of all of the writings of one phenomenologist and only one phenomenologist, they can be living or dead. Um, but if you could only have the collection of one of them with you on the island, whose corpus would you choose and why? I, I would choose the works of uh, Jean-Louis Chrétien. So I said that Michel Henry, in a way, provides the most brilliant iteration of phenomenological philosophy. And I think that's true in that Henri developed a very systematic body of works articulating a sort of unified uh, vision of the nature of the human being and how philosophical reflection should get at the nature of of that human experience. But from a spiritual perspective or from an edifying perspective, ultimately I find Chrétien to be head and shoulders above all the other phenomenologists. And he also happened to be the most prolific. So he wrote, I think like, something around 30 books in his lifetime. So if I were stuck on a desert island, he'd also give me the most to read. So I, I'd have to take Jean-Louis' books with me. Oh, okay. 30? How many of those have been translated in English? I feel like he doesn't have that many translated. I mean, definitely not 30, but not even 10, right? Published in English? Uh, yeah, yeah, a small fraction. I, roughly six or seven of his books have been okay, translated. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so we're only the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, well, I'll be excited to see them in translation. And as I learn French, I'll definitely pick up some of those other ones. Um, 
Let's talk a bit about the relationship between philosophy and fiction, because obviously you've published a good bit. Um, well, yeah, a very good amount of um, philosophy for having just finished your PhD a few years ago. But um, what's maybe lesser known is that you've more recently kind of also turned to fiction, which has been kind of a kind of um, something of a phenomenon. Again, no pun intended. Um among phenomenologists, historically speaking. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about why this kind of relationship between philosophy and fiction and what it means to you since you're also writing your own fiction? Yeah, so one thing to say is that there are those who have long observed that even in Husserl's view of phenomenological methodology, there seems to be a potential connection between writing philosophy or doing philosophy and uh, writing literature or what's at stake in literature. And, and the reason this is said is that in Husserl's philosophical methodology, he, he talks about what he calls eidetic variation. And basically the idea is that the phenomenologist is looking for the essence uh, of a structure or of a phenomenon. It's not supposed to just be based on empirical generalization or limited to a particular uh, a particular case. The idea is that you're looking for a kind of universality that's instantiated in the particularity. And so uh, to get at that essence or that universality or that necessity, uh, Husserl proposes what he calls eidetic variation, the idea that one uh, imagines in one's mind uh, all the ways in which something could uh uh, lose certain attributes uh, until it no longer is the thing that it is. And he says that this is done in the mode as, a, as if, right? So that, that, that it involves a kind of imaginative variation. Another way to think about it is that Husserl is interested in what you could call ideality, the sort of, the, the sort of uh, essence of a thing. And I think this is what's going on in good literature, or good philosophical literature. And I think that this goes some way toward explaining why some of the uh, phenomenologists were also novelists. Of course, there's uh, Sartre, uh, there's Camus, and also Michel Henry wrote a number of, of novels. I mean, uh, recently I came across a really fascinating interview that Matthew Clemente did with Richard Carney in the LA Review of Books. And the discussion there was about the nature between fiction and, and philosophy. And uh, Richard made the point that you have what you might call artistic philosophers. So people like uh, Camus or uh, Nietzsche. And then on the other hand, you have what you might call philosophical artists, people like Dostoevsky. And one way to try to draw a distinction between literature and philosophy is to say that philosophy is in the business of making a truth claim. And it's in the business of saying how things are and how how we should behave and what we should believe. And you might further think that insofar as that's what uniquely characterizes philosophical inquiry as a sort of pursuit of truth, as in the business of making truth claims, then it means that the one who makes these claims is responsible for them. So when one authors a philosophical text, it's always fair to ask the author in question, well, is this what you believe? And, and why do you think it's true? Whereas in the case of literature, you might think, well, it doesn't make similar sense to, for example, read Dostoevsky and say, well, is this what you believe? Because Dostoevsky might say, well, no, that's not what I believe. That's what the character says. And so the idea is that it, it, literature isn't in the business of making the kinds of truth claims uh, on behalf of, a, of, of an author uh, in the way that a work of philosophy is. I mean, the, the classic kind of discussion for this, this issue is uh, Roland Barthes' famous 1967 essay, The Death of the Author. And there, Barthes makes sort of three key interrelated claims. Uh, you know, he first makes this claim about the nature of the voice in literature. And he says that the kind of meaning that's at stake in a literary text or the kind of meaning that a literary text exhibits is unique as a piece of writing because he says uh, in the case of literature, the voice is special in that he says it's neuter or that um, it, it's a confluence of voices. You can't identify 
uh, the voice of the text with the author or even with the narrator. It has a sort of uh, impersonality that is built into the nature of the text. And so then second of all, he says, well, the, the, the meaning of the text, the ultimate meaning of the text, well, there is no such thing. There's no secret meaning of the text that we have to decipher. He says that the, the author, the literary author, he says is a, is, a, is a scripter. He's inscribing something. He's not expressing something. So the death of the author for Barth means that the, the author doesn't precede his text. The meaning of the text is strictly in the text itself, the language of the text. And then the third point he makes is that if that's all the case, if the voice that uniquely characterizes literature is that it can't be traced back to any one specific identifiable source, and if that means that the meaning of the text is liberated in such a way that now language itself is the locus of meaning, then it means that the reader takes priority. So he says that the, the destination of the meaning is no longer in its origin, but it, it resides with the reader. So that's a kind of fundamental challenge to literary meaning that, again, might help one distinguish the, the distinction, if there is one, between literature and philosophy. You could say, well, when a philosopher writes a work, it's in his own voice. We know who's writing it, and he's in some sense responsible and answerable for what he's written Whereas in a work of literature, that's, that's just not the case. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. That's, man, that was, yeah, that's so interesting. I, yeah. Very good. I'm excited to read. I want to read that Richard Kearney um, uh, interview. That sounds really, really good. Um, well, just a quick follow on to that point though. Is yeah, that, um, yeah, yeah. that that's, that's a view, but I, I, I'm still inclined to think that, that even though, in the kind of postmodern condition in which we live, that kind of distinction between philosophy and theology sounds plausible. I actually, I think that there are ways that authors who are writing literature can still have a kind of control over the meaning of their text that makes literature uh, a, a means of doing philosophy, but it, but it requires certain techniques that 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 are difficult, but they can be done. And so one of the things I'll just mention briefly has to do with the, the voice of the narrator. So, you know, in a lot of literary texts, the narrator is a character in the text. He's someone or she's someone who is party to the, to, to the events in the story. That's one approach. Another approach is to kind of have an omniscient narrator who somehow has access to everybody's thoughts, including the protagonist. Um, what I've tried to do in the novels I've written is create what I kind of call a, a third person interiority. So there is, I guess, what you could call a narrator insofar as someone is telling the story. But the narrator isn't really, strictly speaking, um, a character in the story because the narrator isn't the protagonist. But at the same time, uh, neither is it the case that the narrator lacks access to the protagonist's mind. So there's a kind of limited omniscience. So people like mm -hmm. Jean-Louis Chrétien and Barth and others have said, well, one of the problems with modern literature is that uh, it, it abandons realism because very often the narrator has a kind of omniscience that no human person really has. So what, what I've tried to do in my, in my novels is have a kind of third-person interiority uh, whereby the person telling the story is not the protagonist, and yet he has access uniquely to the protagonist's mind and beliefs, but he doesn't have access to the thoughts and beliefs of others. So it's a sort of compromised position where it's no longer clear who the voice is because it sounds in a way as if it's coming from the protagonist, and yet the voice isn't identifiable with the protagonist, and yet at the same time, the voice is an omniscient. And so this is to say that the voice in a way is ambiguous in the way that Barth says the literary voice is. But I would also say as the author that I'm in, I, I am in control of that voice. I created that voice specifically in the way that I did for, for ultimately um, uh, philosophical reasons. So I do, I do think that there's a, a meaning to the text that I as the author have given the text, even if it's true to say as Barth uh, notes that um, there's no longer uh, a, a kind of omniscience that's at work in the text. Sure, sure, yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating stuff. Thank you for sharing. 
Okay, let's wrap up um, with our last question, which is just what you know. What's next for you? What do you What do you kind of have in the works right now? Uh, well, T, right now, I guess I remember you had mentioned or you asked, well, what were the three best books I read this year? There's a fourth book I could have mentioned, which is a book by Anthony Rudd that's on um, uh, on art. It's called Why Paintings Matter, and I'm writing a book review of that book right now. Um, and then in the summer, I'm going to be giving a paper on Marion and metaphysics at a conference in Buenos Aires. So I'm working on on a paper on Marion right now. And there's also the volume that hopefully will be coming out soon with Whip and Stock, uh, the the Finding Meaning volume. And so I'm working on the introduction to that to that volume. I'm toying with a few books right now. I have a book that I want to write on uh, on film noir. And then there's a book that I want to write on the phenomenon of conscience, which in a way is going to be similar to the, the sort of book that Bettina Borgo wrote about uh, the history of, of anxiety. And then there's a third book that, I, that, that, I, that I'm thinking about that is going to explore the theological history of the concept of original sin. And then the final thing that I'm working on is a, is a translation of one of uh, Jean-Louis Chrétien's books, which I hope to have translated uh, for, for next year. Hmm. Lovely. That all sounds like great stuff. I'll be anxious to read some of it. So I just want to say thank you, Stephen, for taking the time. Um, it's been a really fun, enjoyable conversation. So appreciate um, you taking some time out of your day to talk. Yeah, thank you. I really enjoyed it.